Vigo's having to operate even more attackingly now. He really hits that one. Oh, that is just sensational from Luis Vigo. Okay, so I guess kick off. Welcome to episode six. Uh, today I have newly wed Ade, the data wizard of football. Hello, Ade. How are you? Yo, what's up? Yes, the ring on the finger. Sorry, Mr. Data Wizard to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, very cool. Uh, And we have a pessimistic fan of the world, Sat. What's going on, Sat? Hello. Uh, I hope you're happy with that title as it's sticking forever. I mean, even the kickoff to this, you are very pessimistic, but let's not get into that chat for uh the podcast but anyway i guess uh yeah i mean we've uh we're midweek uh one day or oh, well, second day of the champions league i think it's the fifth round um quite an entertaining day yesterday but also recapping most of the work or work or the games that happened over the weekend in the premier league in particular i think there were quite a few things i've learned i mean Nottingham Forest obviously beating Liverpool was a bit of a shock, um, but I guess off the back of that, con- well, off the back of that performance and conversation that's been happening around player recruitment, obviously Nottingham Forest coming in under scrutiny, so to say. I guess we can kick off this week's hot take or box to box podcast with a hot take from Sat. So Sat, do you want to kick off, so to say? Uh, on what your hot take is and maybe um, stoke some discussion. Sure. Um, just while you've been talking, it looks like Barcelona are going to be in the Europa League, for sure. They're already losing. Uh, as if, for sure. Yeah, no, no, it's Inter 3-0 up against Pilsen. Pilsen. It's good news um, for us, I guess. Yeah. Well, is it? <laughs> that was sarcasm. <laughs> uh, right, anyway, back to this uh, the hot take. Yes. One of the things that I've observed over the last, um, say, maybe, maybe two windows, right? Just purely because from an Arsenal point of view, we started to see a little bit more of this around um, the purchase of under 21 players. Um, basically, it's become, to me, it became more apparent over this this window. And um, just looking at a few examples, basically my hot take really is, are bigger clubs effectively now trying to swallow up the next generation as well from other clubs? And essentially, those transfers are going to be very profitable and very lucrative for these smaller clubs. So as an example, um, you can see that this strategy is already starting to form with larger clubs. So looking at um, Chelsea, so Chelsea, obviously, it's kind of hard to tell with them, obviously. You don't know whether they're you know, going for a scattergun approach and trying to buy anyone who would actually join them uh, or actually they have some plan. And it looks like, looking at the, the, the purchases they, they were making, they picked up a couple of very decent talents um, from other Premier League clubs. So they picked up, I think it's Carney Chukwemeka. I can't pronounce the name. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, and Villa, Villa right? and obviously yeah from Villa and obviously they picked up uh, Omari Hutchinson uh, from Arsenal and uh, essentially we started to see the same not same or we started to see initial signs of that at City so City basically picked up um, I think it's Emilio Lawrence from Everton is highly really highly highly rated under 21 uh, player uh, coming out of the Everton Academy uh, and of course you got Tottenham who bought uh, Udo is it Ugo Edoji from Udinese who's actually on the Kepa um, Kepa <laughs> Kepa trophy no comments in the Copa trophy um, is this is this that, the guy uh, that's still on loan at Atlanta or something yeah exactly he, he stays there until next year and he comes back and he's really highly rated uh, as well so so really the big question is is for me is that are we going to start seeing that whole a, a pretty chunky market in that whole um, up and coming player sector effectively can I can um, I ask what what's actually triggered that thought is it just looking at transfers and I mean Ade feel free to to dive in here but the reason I'm asking this is because that's essentially what I've been, well, Dortmund's model has always been like that, promoting youth players, selling at high profit, uh, cashing in essentially, and kind of stoking their reputation on young and upcoming talent. Is that not just a sign of, firstly, a change of policy uh, and making clubs a bit more sustainable, given that FIFA and UEFA are continuously putting in rules, etc.? But the second part of that question would be, in terms of, I guess, looking at Brentford's model, not having an academy, for example, is what you mentioned, or in your notes, um, does that not then stutter the approach in terms of creating an academy and new talent anyway? Where do these talents even come from? But anyway, long, long story short, Dortmund have done it before. Where has your thought process kind of come from? That's what I'm kind of... I don't think it's... Well, I suppose it is, to an extent, a similar model, Right. Dortmund obviously are picking up global talent, yeah, right. In terms of young global talent, for me it looks like this, so. This one is just I'm I'm seeing it more in the prem, right? Is, is what I'm noticing, and I'm just trying to figure out, like I said, like, like you were saying, maybe maybe the talent that exists in some of the clubs just isn't strong enough. Maybe it's a symptom of other things. Maybe it's a symptom of you know, Brexit as an example. Again, I keep saying this with the football. Maybe Brexit means that they can't, clubs can't recruit high quality international talent as easily as they could before uh, at a younger level. So is it a case of um, they're buying from other Premier League clubs to sort of get the best talent at that level? So uh, again, off the back of that, I'm not sure. I mean, it's not, I've just thought of a player, but it's not from. I mean, you can think about Jed Spence and like Spurs, but look at what City have done with Alvarez, for example. I mean, he's not obviously from a PL club, but they've recruited him from abroad. He's what, 19, 20 years old. And, in, you know, that's City. City can effectively buy anyone in, yeah. in world football. I mean, similar to Arsenal when we bought Saliba, right? So you, you kind of bought him at 19. It was like 30 million plus for a 19-year-old. Any idea what Fofana went for? Leicester was I can't remember like 18 or something but yeah Ade what are your thoughts on that like are we are we just are we starting to see the emergence of a new market is what I'm saying really 
right? Or is it just a focus on sustainable management? Uh, I think basically, from my perspective, I think there's a couple of things at play with this market. I think the market has moved, whereby when I was younger, you know, Figos, Galacticos were the players, and that's players that were in their peak between 26 to 29 years of age, going for high sums. And now the market, because of the way that clubs have run more like businesses, value of an asset is now becoming... The key, the key influence on the size of a transfer deal. And I think what these clubs, and I think Chelsea especially, because Chelsea have been a club that go out and buy the ready-made product, you know, finished, microwave, done noodles. They buy it straight so they can put it straight in the first team. And now they're changing because they don't have Mr. Moneybags Abramovich anymore. But then at the same time, they're looking to sell these players on. Chelsea have always been a club that buy a lot of players into their academy, loan them out and then keep themselves sustainable. I think now they're seeing that if we get the best talent before it's actually become to the surface, we can sell at a high price because they still have a ceiling, they still have resale value, and clubs pay higher money for younger players now. And I just think it's different to a Dortmund because, to my mind, Dortmund have always bought these type of players with a mind to embed them into their first team. Same as kind of Arsenal, dare I say, I don't want to sound biased. But I feel now clubs are doing it to stockpile future value so they can say right we have these talents that we can sell on at x price that's a really good point nah. okay really good thought that because you look at just look at the Liverpool situation when they managed to get um who is it like solanke jordan i you know like yeah, just jones 18, is not gone, years old. but he's still there huh? the jones who? guy is still there no jordan Ibe. no i'm saying there's Jones as well, who's there. Oh, yeah, Curtis Jones, yeah. And obviously, we have Harvey Elliott and people like that as well still. But that is right, actually. You think, because actually, in terms of profitability, you know, if you can get, even if you get like, you know, um, you manage to poach a couple of players from other Premier League clubs. So, like, just take Hutchinson, for example. Hutchinson went for free, didn't he? Must, there must be some sort of, like, uh, development fee or something like that they had to pay to Arsenal, like a small one. But I don't think it's, like, huge. They keep him on the books for a little bit. He starts to make some appearances. People get interested. They sell him for, I don't know, 15, 20. That's 20 million pro, pro, pure profit. Yeah, but also... Basically. And actually, it's a gamble. And if he turns out good, he turns out good. And then you have, like, just again, because you guys are mentioning these clubs, there's names that are popping up. So Joe Gomez for Liverpool, from Charlton, essentially. Uh, Low-level club. And now, I think quite easily if they wanted to sell him on 15, 20 M because he's English and he's versatile and he's a defender. That's me being conservative. But I think, yeah, like Adi said, it's a, it's a, it's a shift towards how they view assets. And as much as I hate saying players are assets, they are part of the club's assets. So I guess the second part of that, in, well, not inquiry, well, questioning around Sat's hot take was, I mean, this is this is more towards you, Ali. But with the Brentford model now not having an academy, is there going to be a uh, depreciation in terms of the talent that's already there or being developed per club, or are we actually seeing Brentford being smart? I think Brentford are silly not to have an academy. If you ask me, I, I think the level of club that Brentford are, they need to understand their position in the football pyramid, and What's that saying? Yes, these clubs will be swallowed up because all these young players go to these big clubs. But 
if you are blooding through players like a Crystal Palace, like a, you know these type of clubs, you you keep yourself profitable. And if you understand and accept your position in the football pyramid that yes, we're going to create players and other big clubs are going to come and take them off us, and we'll continue to do that, then you sustain yourself much better now. The problem with Brentford is if they start to go down and start to fail, you know, they're going to have to really go out and recruit. They're going to have to spend to put themselves back in the position. Again, if they get relegated, half of their players are going to want to leave. They're going to have to spend to go and get the talent in again. So I think for a smaller club, club, it almost makes an academy more important now because that is your sustainability. That's like your cash cow that's going to keep you ticking over. And touch it, it touches so an I, asset. I, asset point right like there you you can yeah. gather assets and basically sell it essentially yeah 100 percent. so I, I i don't know where they would go with that model now i mean the players that they have they've recruited well but they've recruited well for the lower league and their manager i think is an awesome manager he's getting the best out of these players but we've seen with so many clubs that have come up to the premiership it can all change in a heartbeat and once it does change they're gonna have to be you know calling in favours from different teams around them to, to, to sustain themselves. I just I, I think an academy is really important. So wh- while you've just been ch- checking that out, like explaining that, which is really good, I've just been also reading uh, the rationale behind why Brentford closed their academy down. So essentially, uh, they were, they were, this is before the Premier League, they were spending around £1.5 million a year running a Category 2 level academy but struggled to compete with other sides who could offer their best players bigger wages and bigger fa- and better facilities. So uh, the example that the Athletic have kind of cited here was Ian Povera, who left the club in 2016. And I think he was 16 years old, went to join Man City uh, and is now at Leeds United. But Brentford only received a compensation fee of around £30,000. Um, and they basically have said... Uh, Brentford's theory was that by focusing on all their resources towards 17 to 21-year-old players, they would be able to establish a more effective route into into the first team. By all accounts, that's actually worked because they're now in the Premier League, surely. Uh, You can't knock the strategy if it's got them to where they are. Uh, um, It's just without youth, I don't see a contingency plan. I don't see, you know... These 17 to 20, I guess the players that they've worked to get into the first team now, fair enough, it's good for them to get there. I think they should really start to recreate an academy because they have more to offer now that other clubs don't. They're in the Premier League. They give players a route to the first team. They they are competing. So I think while it has worked to get them to where they need to be, which is the Premier League, and to keep them there for the seasons they have, they should now capitalise on that. See, I'm, I, I think it's pretty, well, again, what they've actually done, so they've cut the academy, but they've got a B team. So what they do is um, they pick out out-of-favour uh, out players who are being released from Premier League academies, essentially. Um, and they are put in a non-competitive uh, league. So the B team don't actually participate in a league like your academy teams do, but instead they organise kind of their own matches against like a variety Yeah, like of other B teams across. or like lower exactly. level teams and things like that. And so, yeah, I was just going to come to you, Sat. So 
my point is they're competing against teams like Monaco and Bronby and non-league sides like Barnett traveling across Europe to, you know, participate in cups. But surely, I mean, this is the use that, that does that not raise the level of the quality of the football that they're ultimately. Um, potentially, but for me, competition is everything, right? So I think that by not playing competitive matches at a low, at a junior level, you just, you have, you're not ingrained in that way. You're not trained in that way. So, you know, there's, you know, the, the, whether you perform under pressure in the Premier League, you know, is that, that's, um, that's a lot more difficult, basically, if you haven't been ingrained. So, and, and the reason I say this is, look, at, I'm just taking the example of something I read a few months back, right? So I read this book by Richard Moore, which is about the, um, the uh, Jamaican Sprint Factory, right? So, you know, like back in, you know, back in a few years ago, where Jamaica used to produce, effectively the fastest, still produces the fastest women sprinters in the world, produce the fastest men sprinters in the world with Asafa Powell, Usain Bolt, etc. And one of the factors they cited there was in Jamaica, they um, run they run very competitively from a really young age, right? So essentially there's this thing called champs where basically they um, are competing against other schools and it's basically effectively almost like a national sport and national spectacle where the stadiums are full, you know, kids of the ages of like eight, nine, ten, all the way up to, you know, uh, 16 and so on, 16, 17, 18, I think, you know, they're competing you know, uh, you know, all through their lives. And essentially when it comes to the main stage, when it comes to running in the junior athletic championships or, you know, um, in the Olympics and stuff like that, they're used to it, right? They're used to the pressure. They're used to dealing with expectations and that kind of thing. And they in turn perform better. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and and this is, and and again, no slight to some of the runners that this kind of this kind of um, applied to. So th- they were comparing Usain Bolt against Asafa Paul, and they were saying why is Asafa Paul less successful, uh, and especially at the at the start of his career compared to Bolt, right? And one of the things, obviously, is is that is that he hadn't competed as much as Usain Bolt in in uh, proper elite, co- not I say elite, but proper competition, right? So I think. You may travel to Europe, to Monaco, to Bromby, to wherever. If you're not playing competitive football, I think you're going to struggle in the Premier League. And to add to that point, I think, you know, not to dwell, but I think the biggest part of Premier League competing is mental. It's about preparing yourself. We hear our manager talk about it all the time, about being prepared every three days for a game, wanting to get yourself up to get to that level. If you're going around flying to play in these different matches, but there's no competitive edge to it, and the real only prize is potentially getting a crack at the first team, I don't think that's incentive enough for people to kind of show regularly or to get into that routine and to start to build the behaviours that make a Premier League player different to all the other divisions. You know, there'll be players who are good in that team and they think they're good, but they're not able to reproduce their best every week or they're not motivated to do so by that but then also as well I think if you have a I don't know how big the B team is but how big can that team be when you're talking about an academy we see how little players make it I mean we've had we have players that have come into our team we've had Reese Nelson, Saka, Emil Smith-Rowe and there's only Saka, Emil Smith-Rowe really who have 
grabbed that chance out of the big academy that we have. So having an academy gives you, you know, more chance by numbers in my, in my opinion. So it's, 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 there'll be positives for their approach, but I just think in general for a club of their size. It's needed. The other thing, so just to, well, no, to, thanks, to bring sorry. that point. So, yeah, sorry, I was going to say, the other thing is just if you think about it, if you're thinking about it commercially as well, right? Surely by playing these friendly games and that kind of thing, uh, is it as much of an exhibition as playing in Premier League 2, for example? Are you going to get the value for your players that someone else might who has an academy who actually contributes to a competitive reserve level league, basically? I would say probably it makes more sense to play locally for Amarini in the league. But also, you're, they're increasing their footprint by going into Europe, right? So, I mean, somehow they've managed to do it. Somehow they're actually in the Premier League. So, apparently what they're doing is well. However, to bring in Ade and your points, that, um, there's been, a, obviously, there's a change in Premier League rules, which stipulates by the start of 2024, 2025, uh, all clubs competing in the top flight must have a Category 3 level academy or higher. And according to some of the quotes and kind of the ambition of Brentford's uh, senior management and the manager, they want to play in Europe too. Uh, but UEFA's rules also state that clubs who wish to take part in its competitions have to operate an academy, otherwise they will be refused entry. So... I guess there's a crossroads coming if they reach that level. I guess it's an open-ended <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah. It, well, it is, I mean, I, I, whether I think that rule or not, and UEFA and them are fair to, to say how clubs should run is fair enough. But I understand from the FA's perspective, if you know that's going to be a rule here, the football here is not going to work the teams aren't going to do well and they've seen the success that the big club academies are making with players in the England team now I think it makes sense for there to be a national demand but UEFA I just don't know I disagree with that but there is a crossroads coming and I think Brentford will eventually cave I think they have to surely but anyway um, I guess that's a yeah interesting debate and quite factual I must say Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a weird crosshairs Brentford are coming through. And I guess we can jump on to, unless Sat wants to wrap up that kind of um, topic around hoarding players, um, we can jump on to the next, uh, I guess, hot take, so to say. Sat, is that is that cool? Wrap it Please, up. yeah. Yeah, Adi's not going to get a, talk, a chance to talk much in his married life, so let him talk now. <laughs> um, that's coming from experience, Adi. I know. It's been in the I trenches. Know how for true that is. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess this is my. I hate saying it's my hot take, but it is. But it's kind of a good segue into what Adi's observations have been over the weekend. Excuse the fireworks in the background. Um, so after watching, I guess the last couple of weeks or match weeks of Premier League goalkeepers to me are starting to seem increasingly uh, a bigger talking point and I know we keep dithering away from it but we've seen them evolve in terms of their positional play and the way they interact with the team what's expected of them but something about it it feels to me that it's 
it's evolving again. And I know evolving as a word just basically means consistently improving or going forwards. But the reason this has kind of triggered off my thinking was, you know, the Liverpool-Man City game, uh, was it Alisson had an assist? Uh, last weekend, Edison pings the ball over the top against Brighton towards Haaland, getting assist. Um, and yesterday, I was just watching a, a debate, or I'll call it debatable, but a pundit debate on the Champions League channel on YouTube. And they were basically just naming some of the top goalkeepers in you know, Champions League history. Um, they settled for Casillas, who has won it multiple times. Um, Buffon didn't get a men- would got a mention because you know he's been one of the consistent goalkeepers of all time and unfortunately he's not actually won the Champions League so part of their criteria for a goalkeeper to be part of that immortal Champions League team they had to have won it and I'm surprised there wasn't a bigger case for Neuer who essentially to me rejigged the whole way people think about goalkeepers sweeper keeper so I guess it's a it's a question or a take to both of you, what what have you made so far in terms of how goalkeepers have become or what they have become? And can you name me, I guess, these are, these are questions again, can you name me three of the current goalkeepers in the Premier League who are kind of your favourites? And maybe to to cap off this discussion, I know it's a long, long monologue of me going on, but three keepers of your all time since childhood who, you know, basically were your favourite. I guess we can start start with Sat or Ade, whoever wants to go first. What have you thought about goalkeepers so far? And um, I think the keeper situation has changed now. Um, I'm surprised that Noya wasn't in that group uh, just because, as you said, he did rejig. He was keepers. mentioned. I think... They weren't fighting hard for it, if that makes sense. You see, that's the thing. If, if, and that's the thing for me. If I'm going to speak about keepers, I can name three keepers that have had an impact for me. Um, I'll say Oliver Kahn. Interesting. Peter Schmeichel. Peter Schmeichel and uh, David Seaman. And now if you look at those keepers and you compare it to the, the type of keepers that we have nowadays, they were keepers before anything. It's like the evolution of mobile phones I compare it to. Now mobile phones can do everything you want. They can pay your bills. They can heat your house. They can do everything. But back in the day when you had a phone, if it made calls and texts, maybe it had a little snake on it, that was all you needed if the signal was great on it. And I think the, the changing requirements of the game has changed what keepers need to do and changed how we judge keepers, but then also their impact in the game. And I think we're going towards a stage where there is going to be a, you can't just you can't just be a good goalkeeper anymore. You can't just be a shot stopper. You can't just be someone who keeps your net clear because the phases of play now require you. Managers are going backwards and backwards with their play. They now require you to be a contributor. It's now a tactical outlet, as we saw with the goals with Salah and Haaland. The reason why they both both teams resorted to that is because the way the other teams were pressing them meant that tactically the keeper had to realize. And I was watching, uh, you know, analysis on match of the day, and they actually analysed that in the first few minutes the way the teams were pressing, or the way Brighton were pressing Man City, Edison twigged, and now that's that's football knowledge of a central midfielder to realize 
where a team is closing you down and then find the out ball and perfectly place it. That's not, a, you know, that's almost a sweeper. Basically. Um, and, and these two keepers, especially yeah. Alisson and Edison, to me, have kind of like raised the bar yeah. in terms of what you're expecting a keeper to do now with assists. But I think that's, I think that's a trend that's going to continue because they, they do impact games. And Lord knows how they can kick the ball that far and that accurately. But I think more and more teams will look to bypass that because everybody is now playing, employing a high-pressing system. Everyone's trying to push and press further forwards. Everybody's squeezing up teams. And, you know, I think more and more keepers, managers will try and get keepers who can help them relieve pressure by playing the passes like that. So that's just my take on it. I just think as tactics evolve in the game, Keepers evolve in the game, and this is getting closer to the to the true essence of what total football was meant to be. It's a good analogy on mobile phones, I have to say. Sat, who are your three keepers of all time that have? Ooh, three keepers. Just have a think. I think the one that the first one that came to mind was Tafarel, because that was the first proper tournament that I watched. Um, 1994, I think it was, or was it 98, 98 that he was there? And and funny you mentioned yeah. that he's in our quiz. So, <laughs> uh, Tafarel, I'd say um, Oliver Kahn, I think was definitely one of them. He was kind of just you know indomitable basically uh, for a while, and um, and yeah, and I mean, suppose. Um, for me, Casillas also. I mean, he's. I can see why uh, he was chosen as one of the greatest keepers of the Champions League. Um, I understand what you guys are saying about the evolution of the goalkeeper, and I think that's fair. I think when you look at it from a, I think league league keepers have evolved. I think Champions League keepers and international keepers might not be at the Very same level point. yet. And I think that's only because of the style of play, right? So I think like with the Champions League, with the international, on the international stage, I think you've got a more pragmatic approach. And I think the value add of having a keeper like Aaron Ramsdale or Edison or Allison who can, well, I, well sorry, I don't think Allison's distribution is as good as Ramsdale or Edison, to be honest. I think those two are much better than he is, but, Allison is a lot more solid. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I think, I think maybe at an international stage and, uh, you know, and in Champions League, maybe the benefit of having that distribution from the back does not outweigh the risk of potentially cocking something up and conceding something stupid, basically, in a, in a, in a very, very competitive tournament, basically. Very good point. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to you on your on your slate of Alisson. I'm, I'm not a big fan of his, but I can't ignore what he's done. So I'm looking at stats here. In terms of uh, completed passes, which are longer than 40 yards, Alisson has an average of 41% completion. And he's probably right now ranked this season as the fifth best in the league. So, I mean... Given that you were the top four, him, I had to tip. So, Mark Travers for Bournemouth. I mean, given the fact he's not really played that many games, he's he's highly he's, he's basically top at 50%. Number two is another Bournemouth keeper, ironically, it's it's Neto, the new guy. 
that they got from Barca, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, number three with passes completed, as in longer than 40 yards, uh, is Hugo Lloris. And number four is Vicente Guaita, Crystal Palace. So quite a, yeah, quite an interesting mix there. Um, Aaron Ramsdale ranks at 15. Yeah, but it's the style of play um, though, isn't it? I don't think it's, exactly. uh, it's that, it, maybe, I don't know why Alisson would be that high. To be honest, I didn't realize Liverpool was so direct from the back, but it could be a way to get the ball up into the final third or the opposition half, and then just press the hell out of anyone there and retrieve it back or something so like to that. Give, I don't know. To give a bit of context to that, like on average, Allison attempts around six attempts of launching the ball beyond forty yards in a game, and then you you take that for example to Neto at Bournemouth, it's fifteen times. So yeah, quite quite an obvious difference in terms of. So hang on. Um, so out of six, on average of six times, his he his accuracy or his completion is around forty percent. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. So maybe yeah, maybe I was completely wrong about him and his distribution. But how accurate are his short passes? Unfortunately, yeah, passes launched. So, uh, Allison, percentage of passes that were launched uh, longer than 40, 40 yards, his completion is eighteen. Uh, 18%, which is, yeah, it's pretty low, to be honest. I think you might be onto something here. Uh, and then if I'm just looking at his goal kicks, for example, over 40 yards, he's completing 24% of them. Average length is about uh, 32 yards, 32.6 yards. Am I reading that wrong? The thing is, I mean, you can see it. No, <laughs> the thing is here, I, like I was saying, I, I'm... I'm not sure. Like I said, I I don't feel like he's as good on the ball as an as Edison, for example, and maybe as for me, I think I really like Aaron Ramsdale. Right? He he, man, the guy can pass better than Ade can, right? So, <laughs> um, uh, but he and he's a keeper, right? And he plays like he's a midfielder. It's it's unbelievable the amount of the, the passing range that he has, right? Um, the, the the thing, of course, from my point, I mean, this is just a personal preference. I'd rather not have them in my team just purely because I am very, very, very nervous every time the ball is on the ground. There's a player near it. They, you know, Ramsdale goes to fake a shot. He, man, my my heartbeat is like 140 or something like that when that happens. And I think that's a symptom. So of, he feels more secure. Yeah, it's it's a symptom of what you've known football to be like Ade said it's evolved and we've not it's not been that long since we've been used to goalkeepers dribbling and keeping the ball like only four years ago we had Peter checking goal at Arsenal couldn't kick a ball to save his life in short, short yeah but greatest keeper um, in the Premier League era based on clean sheets right exactly and he's he's there for a reason but I think Alisson and Edison are quite easily going to surpass that to be honest um, I'll, I'll take I that guess, uh, I don't think they're going to get close to that clean sheet record Okay, fine. Uh, I'll I'll give you a five if, uh, in terms, of, I'll give you a wager of five quid. Inflation, buddy. Inflation. Yeah, yeah make sure you ramp it up okay, every ten. Every. <laughs> Adi, the the question I had in terms of that, uh, you've already given me your top three uh, all time keepers. Sats also done that. So Sats said Oliver Kahn, Casillas, and uh, who was the third one? Sat Tafarel. Um uh, who are three keepers apart from Alisson and Edison in the Premier League, Ade, that have kind of caught your eye? 
I guess the keepers that have caught my eye are the ones who've made a difference at their clubs. So I say Nick Pope, because he's gone to Newcastle and Newcastle look a much better defensive outfit than, you know, they Shout used to. Um, uh, so, so you can see a market difference. I think as well, and I'm not just saying this because he was in my fantasy team, but Dean Henderson, um, he's been in the shadows at Man United, but not in the forest. He's he's actually played really well. You know, Nottingham Forest has lost a lot of games, but he's probably been their best player this season um, in the games that they've played. He made an unreal save from Van Dyke this weekend too. Um, and then maybe for last season, now I don't know if this was because of the defence he had in front of him or him in general, but Jose Sarr at Wolves. He kept a lot of clean sheets. Wolves were known for being resilient. And, you know, yes, while they have a tight defensive unit, he would have been tested a lot of times. And he did quite well last season. Now, this season, I don't know, it's not not going so well, but he was one that I thought, you know, he kind of surprised me with how well he coped with the Premier League last season. Decent distribution as well. Like, he didn't seem like the bog standard keyboard. He looked like a modern... Yeah, you know, goalkeeper that changed walls. Yeah, but, yeah, good shout. I think. Um, anyone else? Melier, your boy? No, he's got too many. I think he's still got too many errors in him. I, I don't. I, I don't know if you you will understand this analogy, but I, as much as Sat was saying, Ramsdale makes you a little bit worried. There is a certain level of certainty that was just a lack of fear that you have in, when certain goalkeepers are in goal. Yes, they can make mistakes. Yes, they're all capable. But there's certain, like, a, okay, a, a comfort and calm you feel about a goalkeeper. Melier doesn't give me that. And I'll compare Melier to a Pickford in that rather than focus on how safe they are and how, you know, where they do play, where they do play well, there's always that fear that, oh, there's something coming. There's, there's, it's like how Amunia used to make me feel. Yeah, I used to have that with the ends, unfortunately. Yeah, it's like there's something coming. When's the the the, the mistake that's going to cost us the points going to come? And so, I don't know. There's with the other keepers, they just haven't been consistent enough to mention. But that could be the clubs that they play for. They haven't been outstanding enough. But I think for me, people like Melier and Pickford just still, no matter what they do, I just, I just don't, I don't feel safe. So to wrap up, do you do you have uh, any? Keepers from Ade's list that you like, and then we can jump on to Ade's topic. I mean, we've got three topics, but I think Ade, we're going to stick to your Almiron one, which is going to be interesting. But yes, yeah, so any any other keeper that um, sticks out? Uh, not in the same way Ade's choices do. I'm going to go the other way and say the absence of a decent keeper actually is apparent. Like you got Leicester, wow. Ward. Danny Ward is a great guy, but like, geez, yeah. he, he's he really struggles. And I think he may have cost them a fair few points over the first, you know, eight, nine, ten games of the season. Um, in terms of uh, the other ones that Ade uh, mentioned, yeah, really good choices, I think. Uh, Kepa has surprised me as well, Chelsea, but then obviously he had that mistake. I think it was a mistake, I'm not entirely sure, but over the weekend with United. Um, you know, he's been all right. Uh, and obviously, like you said, Nick Pope, Nick, Nick Pope has been pretty decent, I think. Um, but but he's he's in a very traditional sense. He's less of a he's less of a Ramsdale, more of a more of an Allison type type keeper. Whereas I say Allison, 
more of a secure keeper. You know that he's going to be safe behind the stakes. He's going to make silly mistakes and solid. He's very solid. You know what I mean? In, in but you, league, you won't expect him to distribute from the back. Yeah. I saw him live versus Germany, and he was appalling. Really, really. Bad. I don't. I don't know if it was just his fault. You know, people get nervous, man. It was his debut, wasn't it? I think so. Well, yeah. Okay. Good shout. Good. Good. Um, good list there. I, I. I like it. I'm surprised nobody even mentioned. Uh, what's his name? Shilaver, the free kick goalkeeper. Um, but I think on on the basis of Nick Pope and Newcastle, add it. You've got a you've got a quick hot take here that uh, is brewing on the internet around your boy Miguel Amaron and Grealish. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's crazy to think, but I think I, I'm actually. It's not just because there's been a whole lot of memes and a whole lot of banter after this weekend's action, but it's it, it's basically I've been thinking about it, and it is. Occurring to me, the questions there is who is actually better out of Miguel Almiron and Jack Grealish? I know he, he, you know, jibed at him when Man City won the league and he was talking to Bernardo Silva saying he played like Almiron. But I, I just, Jack, for me, Jack Grealish has one good season in the Premiership and that was that season where he kept Villa up. That was his best, that was his most outstanding season. And even in that season, what he produced in terms of output, and you know, let's let's not pretend Jack Grealish plays closer to the front of the pitch than the back of the pitch. He's not a central midfield metronome. He's a winger who has a responsibility to score goals and to create goals. And he was playing in a Villa team that, yeah, it wasn't the best, but it wasn't horrible. And I was just looking at the stats between Amaron and Grealish. Now, Amaron's had five seasons in the Premiership. Grealish has had six seasons in the Premiership. If you know his earlier Aston Villa days as well, where he did play. And Grealish has 18 goals in six seasons. Amaron, 15 in five seasons with his return this season. And we're not even, what, we're not 15 games into the Premier League. So I'm just trying to think, who is actually better? Because I know Jack Grealish has a hype around him. But he's gone to Man City and, you know, he's he's finding it hard to get into the team regularly. And he's had time to bed into the Premier League, whereas, you know, Amaron, he's only one year younger than Amaron. Amaron's had a sim- now a similar amount of time and we're starting to see goals come out of him. Now he's being deployed in a different system under Eddie Howe. So I just wonder, is, is Grealish just hyped by name? And really, should he really put some respect on Amaron's name? Because... There's an argument to say Amaron's actually better, but I, I wonder what you guys reckon. Respect to Eddie Howe, though, for making Amaron who he is. Uh, looking at the stats again, sorry, mate, I've just looked at Premier League. So, Grealish, 128 appearances, Amaron, 122. Grealish, 19 goals, Amaron, 15. Grealish, assists, 19, Amaron, 3. So, there's just the assist factor, which is, I think, is probably going to catch up this year because Newcastle look a lot better. But yeah, so what's your what? I think it's really hard to tell. To be honest, I think Almiron's in the form of his life, and that's who knows how long that's going to last. Um, he scored some amazing goals in the last few weeks, to be honest. Right, like, and uh, I don't know. I think uh, Greedish. I don't know. I don't know whether he would have been a bit more. 
a bit more um, effective at the Villa. And I don't know whether the system that he plays under Pep, you know, suffocates his play a little bit. He's a, a little bit freer at Villa. He was the main man. Appreciate, you know, Adi, you were saying his front end of the pitch, but he was, you know, effectively he was leading that team. It's like in terms of output, I don't know. And again, it felt this way. I don't know if the stats back me up here, but Rosiski didn't have high output, but he had really good ball carries, movement. He used to piece things together, right? Um, so, so, I mean, looking at a player-by-player comparison, it's obviously hard. But obviously, goals aren't the only, aren't the only comparison, right? Otherwise, I'd be better than you, Ade, right? Mm-hmm. To be fair. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, when you look at it from a from a financial point of view and a commercial point of view, you know, I mean, you, you could argue that Almiron has probably given you more output per pound spent. You also, at this I stage. think, thinking about it too, though, from that perspective, you you have to ask the question. I know Greenish was there at Villa, he got, you know, eight goals over the season. He had 19 assists in total, which is fair enough. But I asked myself the question as well. If you put Grealish in this Newcastle side, would Jack Grealish be having the same impact as Almiron? And I know what you're saying about him being under Pep in a different system, but Foden has the exact same remit as Grealish in a Pep Guardiola team. And Foden just gets goals. Foden has that about him to get goals so and he still contributes assists he still he was playing their false nine he he does everything and so for me it's kind of like as much as he did well at Villa I think his excuses I think has really shown him up being at a club like Man City and you know while I like him as a character I don't know I don't know it's it's the same thing but you think about Zaha right Zaha had the same issue he was at Palace did really well went to United didn't do as well as that might have been related to David Moyes and his daughter or whatever it was but he didn't do that well at United Um, came back to Palace and he's amazing because he's the main man it just might be yeah it might just be a, a club thing Pep said this as well about, I think he's asked about like Rulish last week or two weeks ago about the Champions League, about how, why you signed him, etc. And he basically said the reason isn't just because of the goals. It was about, you know, teams playing a low block against City and how Rulish is one of those players that can dribble past people. Uh, I don't think his output is is as heavy, but that was the rationale, I guess, uh, backing his record signing. I, I was going to say, the thing with Zaha is that, the, you know, the, the, the Zaha thing, I think Zaha went to a big club prematurely. Zaha didn't go to a big club when he was, you know, towards the tail end of his 20s where he could handle that. I think certain players need to be a bit more mature on and off the pitch before they can play for certain teams. But there's certain young players who just walk into teams and they have that ability, as I said, a la Foden's and stuff that can, you know, from very early on, be effective in in those teams. I, I think Grealish is still one of those, but he's had a chance to mature. He's played in England a lot longer. He knows the demands of the Premiership and the Championship and the Premiership again. So if anything, you should, for me, I feel like now Grealish should be kind of taken off. He's got the right platform to do it. He's at one of the best teams, the best team in the league. So I think the things that he doesn't have as a part of his game he started showing at you know Villa in that one season that he could do it and he should have gone further, but now he's not. Whereas Almiron's come to this league, he came from the MLS, 
which is going to be an adjustment. It's going to take time. The Premier League's the hardest league in the world. No English football experience. And he's now starting to realise that more than a hundred million pound signing. So I'm playing devil's advocate, I know, but it's a, it's a decent, I feel there is a real a decent discussion. Uh, while you guys were talking, I was looking at Phil Foden's stats and Zaha stats. Phil Foden has scored 30 goals and 108 appearances, 16 assists, obviously all at Man City, so that obviously helps. Zaha, 288 appearances, 66 goals, 28 assists over the course of his career. So, yeah, I mean, the bar is Zaha. Uh, and arguably, you played at, you wouldn't say worse teams, but uh, bottom of the half table teams, majority of the time at Crystal Palace. So, yeah, I guess um, unless you guys want to put a wager on who scores the most goals against Grealish and Almiron, we can jump on to the quiz if you guys are ready. Stop trying to make your money back. The worst bet. I have to, I have to play, I have to play like the dealer, man. Come on. No, nobody's going to go for a bet. We're not, we're not betting on. No, Almiron. gamble responsibly, guys. Hell no. <laughs> Don't be taking silly bets. Okay. Okay, cool. Uh, I guess uh, that takes us to the uh, last part of the conversation or podcast. Uh, jumping on to the quiz. So I have, just to double check, um, I have two true or false questions. I have two bang on the head questions and I have two uh, multiple choice. So um, who wants to go first? Are we tossing a coin? Are we just going to elect someone? Who wants to go first? We'll let the married man go first. Let's, Adi, you can go first this time. Um, what what question do you want? Bang on the head, multiple choice, or true or false? Bang on the head. Okay, bang on the head. Um, I'll give you the shorter one. So your question is, on the theme of goalkeepers, which is the majority of this quiz, um, can you give me the nationality of the goalkeeper who invented the scorpion? Oh. You know the save I'm talking about, right? I know the save. I'm just trying to think where it's from. I'll say Colombia. I feel like it's Colombia. God damn. On the <laughs> nose there, mate. Well done. One point. Oh, okay. His name was Rene Zapata. Higuita. It was yeah, Rene Higuita, man. Yeah, Jose Rene Higuita yeah. Zapata is his old name. All ah, right, okay. Don't play with me, man. Higita, man. Stop, okay. stop lying. Okay, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. Ade, keep score. You've got one point, yeah? Hang on. On the nose only gives you one point. Or bang on the head yeah, or whatever. We're, we're just going with one point this time, man. No no tier okay. system. Uh, so, Ade, one point. Okay. Sat, what question do you want? True or false? True or false. Sat, first question. Is Fabian Barthez considered one of the shortest ever goalkeepers in the Premier League? Yes, true. Correct. One point. Oh, so is it one, is he what, one, 178 cm, something like that? Five foot ten, but still considered one of the My shortest. My boy. Mm. I mean, it's kind of an easy question because I've always, I always had an image of him being very short, but anyway. Um, okay, cool. Uh, second part, second round. Ade, you have one true or false question left. You have uh, one bang on the head left and two multiple choice. 
what multiple you want. Choice. So in terms of the multiple choice, you just have to, I'm going to give you the options, but you need to give me the, the answer, if that makes sense. So um, you don't have to give me like a, a list of answers just to give you clarification. People got confused in the past. Um, so in terms of multiple choice, out of these goalkeepers, who has the lower amount of clean sheets in Champions League history? Again, in terms of goalkeepers, who of these have the lowest clean sheets record in Champions League history? Your options are Gianluigi Buffon, Ike Casillas, Manuel Neuer, and Van der Sar. Who has the lowest? So, okay. I'm giving you the keeper who has the lowest. Yeah, I'll, give you, I'll give you the options again. Casillas, Buffon, Neuer, or Van der Sar? Neuer. Incorrect, sir. Is it Van der Sar? Correct. Just oh, in terms wow. of longevity, right? So, Van der Sar basically played, what, Ajax, no. Fulham for a while... Then United, right? Yeah. United for majority yeah. of his career afterwards, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So, Ade, you got zero points. Uh, I'll give Sat 0.5 because he... No, no, no. no. But... It's fine. I, I'll win this fair and square. I don't need any, any charity okay. points here. Fine. <laughs> okay. So, it's 1-1. One, one. Sat, it's your round. You've got um, one bang on the head. You've got one true or false and one uh, multiple choice. What are you going for? I'll, I'll keep it interesting. We'll go with bang on the head. Wow. Brave. Right. It's a tough one. Um, so, out of these keepers who played for Brazil, can you name me... Actually, I'm not giving you the keeper's name. Sorry. So, it's a bang on the head. Can you name me the four most recent goalkeepers who represented Brazil in the last five World Cups? A hint for you is one of the goalkeepers played in two of the World Cups. Uh, Does that shit. question make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So right? basically, yeah. name me the last five World Cup goalkeepers for Brazil. So it's, I think it's 2002 was the five year, five, fifth tournament. Right. Let's think. Um... <laughs> you you told me to pick up Tafarel. Uh, I, I knew I tricked you on that one. He's not in this list. <laughs> okay, Julio Cesar is on this list. Okay, you got him, and he represented them on two World Cups. So well done. That's one of your goalkeepers. Okay, that was um, the hardest one to be honest. I don't know, man. I think the the period in like 2010 is come on, man. This is this is bread and butter. Uh, Dida. Yes. Second one, correct. Yeah. Uh, I think I don't know where this Allison. Yes. Allison. Yeah. He was the last goalkeeper, the last World Cup. Yeah. You've got one more, and I'm going to give you a hint. Think about Pro Evil. That's not really a good hint, dude. You will, <laughs> if you if you remember it, if I tell you the answer, you'll know. Yeah, I probably will know you if you tell me the more. answer. As in, you'll, you'll realize it's a good hint. 2014, right? Is is the year no, I'm no, talking no, about? No. no. Alison, Julio Cesar, and Dida are your most three recent keepers. There's one more that goes beyond Dida and not Tafarel. Oh, man. 
Uh, I don't know. I I really have no idea. So you're gonna get zero points here, mate. Yeah, go on. Zero points it is. Marcos. How would I have rem- I, nah, I would not. He was in that. Pro Evo 2003. He was the Brazilian keeper all the time. All the time. I don't remember that. Marcos. 2002, I think he was the keeper. Random keeper. But anyway. So you guys are tied. You got one last round left. Uh, you have one true or false, Ade. And then you have one multiple choice left. True or false. What are you going for? True or false? Okay. So, Tim Howard has played 210 games consecutively in the Premier League. Is this the longest ever streak? False. You're going with false? Yeah. You are correct. Brad Frieden is good. Yeah. You have a point. Sat, it's up to you to draw level. You've got a bang on the head, and this comes down to your... It's not bang on the head. I've got uh, sorry, it's a multiple choice. choice. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a multiple choice, and it comes down to your boy, Tafarel. Oh, no. So this is to tie the quiz. That is leading 2-1. What club, did, uh, what club didn't Tafarel play for? Your list is Internacional, Parma, Galatasaray, and Boca Juniors. So say that again. So which of these clubs? So which of these clubs didn't Traffarel play for? Internacional, Parma, Galatasaray, or Boca? I think Boca Juniors would be too easy. It's probably Parma. Incorrect. You had it. You had it in the first one, man. It was Boca Juniors. Adi takes the win. (laughs) (laughs) It felt too easy. It felt like he was trying to trap me. Nah. Well done, Adi, uh, this week's quiz champion. Uh, and yeah, thanks for your time, guys. I think that's a wrap. Uh, I guess you guys can toodle off to watch the Champions League. But Adi, consider, Adi uh, consider this my wedding present. Wedding gift. I knew that was coming. To get married. Too easy. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for Cheers. your time. And Cheers. hope to catch up next week. That's fine. Bye. Vigo's having to operate even more attackingly now. He really hits that one. Oh, that is just sensational from Luis Vigo.